been talking about, and this is what we're really kind of spending the summer talking about, is what is it that our church is about? The name of the church is True Life Church. We started um, talking about the idea of a church about two years ago. And really, what, is, what does this mean? What does the idea of true life mean? And that's what we're taking the summer to really talk about, to, to spend time discussing this idea and how, it, how the idea really is, what does it mean to live life in relationship with God? What does it mean to live life in relationship with one another and then to live life in relationship with the world around us? So what is true life? That's what we are talking about. And it's kind of broken up into those three different things, true Jesus, true community, and true purpose is kind of how we talk about that idea. And this is the fourth week and the final week talking about our relationship with God. Okay, so here, let me give you just kind of the recap of what we have talked about. If, you've, if you haven't been here and you uh, missed the first three weeks, you'll get it in about two minutes. And uh, you can also listen to it online. Or if you have been here, just to kind of refresh, here's, here's what we've talked about, okay? First idea is this. God saves us. Now, that's huge because every other teaching, every other religious system, every other kind of thought and philosophy out there is that we have to be good and then God will accept us. We have to work hard, and then we can earn our salvation. People talk about this um, in things like, hey, I'm good enough to get to heaven. Things like that. But the Bible says, what, what God says, what the Bible teaches, what the word gospel means, good news, is that God saves us, not based on anything we do, but his grace. That he says, I give grace to people that don't deserve it. I save the bad people. I I said this last week, I've said it multiple times, Christianity is the only thing that teaches, it's not the good people that get into heaven, it's the bad people that get into heaven. I mean, very, very controversial, very upside down, which is that it's the people that are humble that say, I need a savior that God saves, not the good people. Okay, that's, that's what we talked about the first week. Second week, what we talked about is this, that God, because of all that, What is it that, why does God save us? And what does that mean that he saves us? And what does he save us for or to? And that idea is this, that God doesn't just forgive our sins. And that's often what we think of. If you have been a part of the church, you've grown up in the church, the idea of what is the gospel, what is the good news, it's often Jesus forgives me of my sins. And that's true, okay? That's a beautiful truth. If you feel like you've got sin, Jesus forgives it. That's amazing. But... Why does he do that? And the reason he does it is because God, what God most wants for you and me, what God most wants for our life is joy. God wants our joy. And so what does he do? He gives us the best thing that he could give to us, which isn't money or candy or or beef jerky even. What it is is himself. God gives us himself. He wants our joy, so he gives us himself. And so what the Bible teaches is this. God forgives us. God cleanses us. God redeems us. God saves us to bring us to himself. And that's the whole point, is to bring us into relationship with him, to bring us into his presence, to bring us into life with him as king, living with him, enjoying him. Okay, so that's week two. Week three, look at this. You're just getting all caught up. Okay, week three, we talked last week we talked about this that what then draws us away from God, the idea of sin, is not just the bad things that we do. It is that, but where does that come from? And where it comes from is our hearts going after other gods. 
loving other gods. This is the idea of idolatry, which is not just bowing before some statue. It's that we are designed and made to worship God, to love God, to enjoy God, but our hearts drift towards other things and we set those up as God. That instead of an idol is anything that we build our life around instead of the one true God. An idol is anything that we get our sense of meaning and value and identity and worth and purpose from instead of the one true God. But in the end, what those things do is they eat us alive. We looked at a quote by an author named David Foster Wallace and he talked about, and he's not even a Christian, but analyzes this situation correctly, that anything we set up as a God, in the end, it eats us alive. If we set up beauty as a God, in the end, we're always worried, am I pretty enough? Am I, well, do other people think I'm pretty enough? And in the end, it destroys us. If we set up money, if we set up any other people's opinions of us, anything, in the end, it destroys us. It eats us alive. So this is what we talked about, that God saves us, we don't save ourselves. That God saves us to bring us into relationship with him. He wants our joy, so he gives us himself. And yet what draws us away from him is loving other things, pursuing other things, building our lives around other things, getting identity from other things, instead of worshiping him, the one true God. So then tonight, as we wrap up kind of this first section, what I want to talk about is if it's true that only Jesus, only the one true God will really satisfy our hearts, only in him can we really find a sense of meaning and value and identity and worth that won't eat us alive. Only in him. If that's really what we're made for and only in him do we find that, how do we keep him at that place in our life? How do we keep him at the center? How do we keep him as the, as the one that defines us versus other gods, versus other false gods? How do we keep building our identity and our sense of who we are and what's most important? How do we keep Jesus in that spot versus other things? How do we do that? And so today we'll even be a little bit more practical than other things that we have talked about. But, but that's what I want us to look at tonight is how does that actually happen? Okay, we know we're not supposed to worship these other gods. And yet don't we tend to drift that way all the time? Don't we tend to love other things and build our lives around other things? So how do we keep it so that Jesus is in that place? And to talk about that, we have to first ask this question, which is why do we worship what we do in the first place? So the other things that we do worship, the other things that we, and, and you know, this, if you weren't here last week, this, this word worship just means to ascribe worth to something. That's where it comes from, worth-ship. It's just to ascribe worth, to ascribe value. So why is it that we set up these other things and ascribe worth and value to them and build our life around them? Why do we worship what we do? Or you can think about it this way, why do we love what we do? the things that compete for our attention and our affection instead of God, why do we love those things? Why do we worship those things? Why do those things become God to us? And there's a lot of reasons for that, okay? There's a lot of different reasons that have to do with how we grew up and the situations uh, that we've been exposed to and parents and different experiences we've had. There's all sorts of different factors that contribute to that. But really, one way that we are influenced, or the way that we are influenced, that all other factors contribute to is this. It's what we see. It's what we see. And I don't just mean, you know, looking over there, oh, I see that. It's it's what fills our vision, what fills our mind, what fills our focus. So let me explain how this works. Think about it even just on a 
just a really basic level, that whatever you see affects what you love. Whatever you fill your vision with affects what you ascribe worth and value to. Companies know this, which is why when you watch movies or TV shows, there's brand placement, right? So um, I was thinking about this, and it just came to me like an hour ago, and I didn't even think about it. And I don't know if this is the reason, but maybe it is. So I love the show 24. Anyone used to be a fan of that show? Yeah, I know it's been off for a while, but okay, we got a fan. 24, the best show ever made, okay? It really is. My mom is in town. She asked me, she said, if you could be in any TV show, what TV show would you be a character in, you know, for 30 days or something? I was like, well, as long as I had a, like a bubble around me that I couldn't get hurt or tortured or anything, you know, it'd be 24. I'd just follow Jack around. But anyway, so here's what's interesting. In the, the, like the first the first season of 24, they were always driving around black Ford Explorers. And they, no one ever, Jack never got out and said, look at this Ford Explorer, isn't this great, right? That never happened. But companies do that with Apple or with, I mean, they just place things next to people that you like and value. I have a black Ford Explorer. Now, I don't know. I, I did not say, give me what Jack has, you know, when we went and bought that car. But I don't know. Maybe that's why I have it. And I'm serious because what happens is, this is why companies do this. They begin to place things. They begin to put just whatever you see is what you begin to love. Whatever fills your vision, whatever fills your mind, whatever you're looking at, it starts to cultivate in your heart. This is why, and we, we know this with um, a big way that this is talked about is with, and I know I've kind of mentioned this uh, the last several weeks, but is body image. And people say this all the time, like, uh, you know, with Photoshop and stuff like that, that they say, um, you know, all these images inundating us and it begins to shape what we think of beauty and, and there's been like a big outlash against Photoshopping and that kind of stuff because we're projecting these images that people see that then forms what we value, right? We see certain images of beauty, we see certain images of things and it begins to form our heart, it begins to form what we love, what we value, what we believe is beautiful, or if you think about um, romance, things like that, or um, maybe you struggle with wanting a spouse, wanting to be loved, and that's a, and not that that's a bad thing, it's a great thing, but I mean, you, it's, a, it's a big struggle for you. It hurts. But what happens is if you're reading books and you're watching movies and you're listening to songs that are all cultivating that, it begins to form, I want that, I don't have that, I want that, I don't have that. It forms our hearts. What we see, what fills our vision, what fills our minds begins to form our hearts. Whether it's Jack Bauer, which that's a good one, okay, that's okay. But Jack Bauer, just, or, or body image, or romance, or success. You know, if, if you are, if you are, if, if um, let's say success is an idol for you. And I know I will have meaning. I know I will have value. I know I will have worth, my identity, if I am successful. How... Why do we worship what we do? Why does that become an idol? Probably because your vision is being filled with that. You're looking at it in other places. You're seeing, oh, look at that guy. He's successful. I want to be like that. Or just through your mind. I'm not even talking like physical. Just you begin to think about things. Roll them around in your mind. What you see, what fills your vision, forms your heart. And this is happening all the time. Okay? Consciously, we think about things that begin to fill our vision. And unconsciously, like with Jack Bauer, begins to fill our vision. And here's what the Bible says happens. 
Psalm 135, David writes this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So what he says is this, whatever it is that we set up to worship, whatever it is that we make a God in our lives, eventually we become like that. Deaf, dumb, blind, and it begins to affect our lives. So you set this thing up as a God and we start to become deaf, dumb, and blind like that very thing. This is kind of what we talked about last week, that it enslaves you. You, I mentioned this, you set up beauty as a God and then it it starts to affect your heart. It eats you alive, as David Foster Wallace said. But the problem is this, we have to worship. And that's not even saying it rightly. We are always worshiping. We are are creatures that have been made nonstop, always worshiping. We are always ascribing worth to to something. Our life is always flowing out of what we value, what we worship. That's always happening, okay? That's just a continual state that our hearts are in. So it just matters what what we put there. But what happens is this, this is the problem, is we set up something, we worship that thing, we become like that thing, it begins to affect our lives and harm our lives. And so even then if we say, I don't want that there anymore, that's harming me, It's dangerous. I don't like it. We get rid of it. We still have that gap and still need. I mean, we are made to worship. We're meant to get our sense of identity. We're meant to get our sense of worth. We're meant to get our sense of value from something. So we always have that. So even if you get rid of that, you need something else. Or even if you keep whatever. Let's let's use, uh, let's use success. Back to success, okay? Let's say success is in that place for you. What happens is this, success is not a powerful enough God to fill that gap that we have because we're designed to receive that from God, to receive a sense of identity from him. But if we put success there, what happens is you get a little bit of it and it's like a little fix, you need more, you need more, and you need more, or affection from other people or people's opinion of you. Now think about this, let's say you walk into a room, maybe even this room, you don't know anybody. So what, and and if for you, other people liking you is in this place, what do you need? You need someone to say hi to you, right? But that's not enough. So you need more than that the next time, and more than that the next time, and more than that, and more than that, and more than that, because that can never fill that sense of worth and value and identity. So we always need more and more and more and more. We're meant to get filled. We're meant to get a sense of identity. We're meant to feel I'm okay from God. And only he's powerful enough to fill that. So anything else we put in that place, we always need more and more and more and more. And this is what happens with addictions, right? You get a little buzz, but you need more. You get a little buzz, you need more. You need more, stronger, more powerful to still give you that same feeling. It's like, you know, uh, I don't know if anyone's ever tried this, but you could stay awake by drinking coffee, right? Or Red Bull for a day, maybe two, I don't, maybe three. Maybe four. I don't know. How long could you stay awake by just continuing? But eventually, it would destroy you, right? If you just kept... Because we're made to get that sense of rest from sleep. That's where we're designed to get it. 
But if we keep getting the little fills, it'll work maybe for a little while, but eventually it'll destroy you physically. The same is true with what we worship. Whatever we put in that spot, it can't actually fill us. It can't actually give us the sense, yes, I have an identity. I'm okay. I'm loved. Whatever we put in that place, other than God, we need to keep getting more and more and more and more and more and more of. But it'll still eventually destroy us. So how do we get rid of that? How do we change if that happens? Why do we worship what we do? It's what we fill our vision with. It's what we fill our sight with. It's what we fill our mind with. And everything is forming this all the time. When you get on your phone, right? You're scrolling. You're looking at social media. That's forming you. I mean, there's been tons of studies done on this. People that, I mean, I can't, I mean, just, there's been studies, okay? You look, <laughs> you look at Facebook, it hurts you, basically, this is what the studies say. The people that look at social media and all that, and I do it too, but it, I mean, you feel more lonely, you feel more like you are missing out because everybody puts the best out there. I mean, I, I, I'll t- I mean, I'm not naming any names and it's no one in this room, okay? So no one you know, but I know people who are going through hell in their life. But all you see in social media is, wow, I want that. And it's forming you. It's forming your heart. It's, if we see these things and it forms. So everything all over the place, all the time, consciously, unconsciously, is forming what we love, what we value, what we believe we have to have, what will give us worth, what will give us identity. All the time it's happening. Okay? So how do we change then if you know what those things are? If you know, yeah, for me, this is in the place of God. I'm looking to this for only what God can give me. How do we get rid of it? One way that sometimes we say in the church is just stop. It's bad. Don't do that. But that doesn't work because something has to be there and our hearts will worship. Another way is to just say switch it out. That's kind of like, um, I think I mentioned this last week, is if, it, if for you that is uh, how you look, then people say, well, no, it doesn't matter how you look. It matters how smart you are. Well, you just switch it out. But it's it just the same thing. It just keeps happening over and over and over again. And our hearts go after other things instead of God, and they eat us alive. So pray with me as we end our... No, I'm just kidding. So, so okay, so what do we do? It's like, man, it's all bad news. What happens, okay? So how, so how do we worship God instead is the question, Okay. Our whole lives flow out of worship. Why do we worship what we do? Because of what we see. Our hearts are being formed continually. So how do we worship God instead? How do we worship God instead? And this is a very important question. We're going to look at a lengthy section of scripture. Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And here's what he says. If you have your Bible, you can turn to this because we'll kind of be looking at this the whole time. So if you want to turn to it, if you don't have a Bible, you can have the one in front of you and just keep that. Um, and, and here's what Paul says. Okay. And this is a long section and I'll kind of explain some of the parts through this, but here's how we begin to worship God instead. So here's what Paul says. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, so here's what he's talking about. He's talking about the 10 commandments. He's talking about the law that God gave to Israel Okay, this is the first covenant that God set up with his people, Israel. Now, if the ministry of death, he calls it the ministry of death because in the end, it condemns us because we, don't, we can't live up to it. So he says, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory, so it's a good thing, came with such glory, 
that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. So let me stop. So here's what he says. God gives the law, the Ten Commandments in part, to Israel. And he says this is a good thing. It's a ministry of glory. It's glorious because God's revealing himself. He's, He's giving his law to his people to govern them. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But it does condemn us because we don't live up to it. It does condemn us because it shows us we're sinners. And, and even as glorious as that was, that Moses' face had to be covered. So if you've seen, I don't, know if they, I don't know if they did this in the new movie, but in the old movie with Charlton Heston, when he goes up on the mountain, he comes back down and his face is like glowing and, and, and he's got gray hair all of a sudden, you know, because it, God's glory changed him. And what Moses had to do was wear a veil because his face was so crazy that if people would have seen his face, it would have like, I don't know, zapped them like a fly or something, okay? So he wore a veil. And he says this, if that happened back then, with God's glory being revealed through the law, what about now, since Jesus has come? Indeed, in this case, what once had glory back then has come to even have no glory at all because of this is so much even more glorious. Keep going. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day... When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. So they still don't see God's glory. There's still a veil. They still can't see the fullness of his glory that's been brought in Jesus. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Only through Christ do we see the glory uninhibited. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, whenever the law, whenever the Old Testament is read, a veil lies over their hearts. They can't see the fullness of what it actually means. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When we turn to Jesus, you can see God's glory. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. This brings us freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I'll go back to that in a second. Skipping ahead just a few verses. Then he says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, so the gospel, the good news that we've been talking about, even if that's veiled, covered, not totally seen, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, he's talking about the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of, of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So some people are blind and they can't see the glory of Jesus in the gospel. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God 
in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, how do we worship God instead? I know that's a lot of scripture. But here's what Paul says. It's the same thing as why we worship other things. It's by seeing him. Let me go back to this verse real quick. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. So when we see God's glory, what happens? We are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. So how do we worship God instead of the other things that we worship? It's by seeing him. It's by seeing his glory. It's by seeing his glory in the gospel. It's by seeing Jesus that we worship him. It's by seeing Jesus that we see how glorious he is. Seeing changes us, Paul says. That we're transformed when we see him. So here's what this means. What changes you and me to worship other things? So we worship these things. Success, beauty, other people's opinion, respect, our own morality, family, spouse, whatever. We worship these things. How is it that we'll worship God? We have to see him. And I don't mean like look at a picture book. You have to see him in his glory, Paul says. And then that transforms us. Not because we see him and we say, oh, that's really nice. I'll try to be like that. Not you see him and then say, oh, okay, that's a good example. I'll try to be like that. But you see him and are changed on the spot. Seeing glory, seeing something, this, this is true with anything, but it's more true with God. Anything you see as glorious changes you. So when you see Jesus as glorious, it transforms you. Okay, I know this is kind of heady, but walk with me through this. Let me maybe explain it like this. Because this is true outside of God. That when we see something as glorious, it changes us on the spot. When we see something as weighty, as big, it changes us on the spot. Think about it negatively and then positively. Negatively, what happens if you begin to think about a worst case scenario? Maybe there's layoffs in the company. Maybe you're wondering, do they like me? Do they not like me? Just whatever. You start thinking of worst case scenario. You go in for a scan and there's something. We'll tell you what it is in a week. Okay. So you, what happens when you start envisioning, seeing, worst case scenario? You're changed on the spot, right? Nothing has happened yet, but just by seeing it. I was just talking to a friend the other day. Starting, she just started to play out in her head. I think this is going to happen. And I think, and you could see it in her eyes. She's think, she's seeing it. I think this is going to happen. And then she starts crying and she starts shaking. Because seeing changes you. Or positively. Many of you, like me, love the mountains, right? Sarah and I went to Telluride a couple weeks ago. Most beautiful place I've ever been in my life. Gorgeous. The mountains are just like huge. It's the, it's the biggest uh, San Juan mountains, the biggest collection of 14ers, so big giant mountains, um, in the country or North America, I think. So it's huge, gorgeous, beautiful. So just driving through there, I'm driving and we're coming up and it's like, Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. Look at, look at, Sarah's like, look at the road. So I'm like, it's beautiful. She's like, you want me to drive? Because it's just, it's beautiful. 
And just seeing that is changing. I'm not saying I'm becoming more holy by seeing the mountains, but I'm seeing them and it's changing me. I mean, this is why, this is why humans have created art, right? I mean, why else do we create something and say, look at that? Because seeing it changes us. We look at it and go, wow. This is why um, you watch a movie or you read a book. You see a story. Seeing a story affects your heart, right? And again, I'm not just visually talking in your mind. So you read a book or you view something. You're not actually participating in it, but seeing it, seeing it changes you on the spot in the sense that it creates an emotional response, right? Let me show you this. That's an example of that, okay? Just a little you video clip. Right there. I know. Can you, you uh, turn it up? All right, so watch this. You may, you maybe, maybe, maybe you've seen this. It was going around on Facebook a while ago, but I want you to see it. What do you feel? You love that woman right there? You love her, right? Yes, sir? Now... You're not an adult till you're 18. Do you want me to be your daddy for the next eight years, son? Huh? Yes, sir. You do? <laughs> Why do you want me to be your daddy? I have no daddy. You have no daddy? Well, let me tell you something. Come here. Give me a hug. So, just a small little example, okay? That when you see that, unless you're cold-hearted, maybe you're just like, ah, who cares? You see that, it creates an emotional response of, ah, I see an affection. I see, and some of you are crying right now. No, I'm just kidding. You know, it creates creates an affection in you that is, I see some love. I see something there that moves my, it changes you on the spot, right? You didn't go, oh, that's nice. I'm going to go put that into practice, right? You see it on the spot and it moves your heart, okay? Paul says, this is what happens with God, that the way we are transformed, the way we worship God is by seeing him. We see him and it changes us on the spot. We see his glory and it changes us on the spot. Here's how John says this in his letter. Beloved, We are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. So what we're going to be, one day we're going to be like Jesus. If you're a Christian, we should want to be like Jesus. What we're going to be, we're not yet, right? Nobody's perfect. We're not there yet. What we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, which is what we all want, right? I want to be like Jesus. Or if you're a Christian, that's what you want. How does that happen? Why will we be like Jesus? We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So here's what he says. Why will we become like Jesus? Because we will see him as he is. Not because one day we'll see him and he'll teach us better how to be like him. One day we'll see him and he'll finally be able to coach us through it. We will change on the spot because we will see him as he is. Right now, we see him kind of as he is, but other things get in the way, right? We look at other things. Other things fill up our vision. Other things, we see him kind of how he is, but not fully. One day, you and me, if you're a Christian, you'll be like Jesus. 
Why? How? How does it happen? You'll see him perfectly as he is. Uninhibited, unveiled completely. You see his glory perfectly. And what does it do? It will change us on the spot. Because we will see, just like a mountain, just like the little boy on Jenny Jones. I think that's what her name was, right? Just like that, it'll change. Because you'll see fully, he's so much better than anything else. You'll see him, and so that changes our hearts. This is what John says. This is what Paul says. This is, I mean, Paul says in Romans that faith, which is our trust in God, our reliance on God, our belief in God, our living our lives in total submission to God, faith comes through hearing, which he's talking about the word being preached. Or John, same John, uh, when he wrote his gospel, the whole story of Jesus, at the very end of it, he says this, I wrote these so that you would believe. I wrote these so that your mind and your heart would believe, would see Jesus, and that by believing you would have life, that you'd be changed. You'd experience joy and all of that. So, how do we worship God instead of the things that we worship? We worship him when we see him for who he is. We worship him when we see him for who he is, we're transformed from one degree of glory to the next, Paul says. We, we're changed when you see his glory, when you see his worth, when you see his value, when you see his greatness, when you see his beauty, when you see all of that. That's what then changes us to go, wow, he's who I worship. And it changes you on the spot, not just I see him and then try to be like him. It's I see him. And when I see clearly, if I see clearly, I'm becoming like him just in the seeing of him. This is why our view of God is really important. Or a reason why our view of God is really important. Because how do you view God? However you view him is what you will become like. For positive is what I'm talking about, but for the negative too. I mean, how do you view God? If you view God as distant, he's somewhere out there, he's kind of out, I know he exists, he's a distant relative, I think he cares for me, sends me a card every once in a while. If that's how you view God, that affects you. If you view God as kind of looking at you with some, if you do a good job, he's pleased. If you do a bad job, he's not too happy. He's kind of an arms crossed kind of God watching your moves, judging you, seeing how you're going to do today, that's how you view him? That affects you. How you view God affects you. And then that flows out into your relationships with other people. I mean, what what happens if you think God is a very impatient God with you? If you think God's very impatient, everything you do that you mess up on, everything you don't understand, everything that you're like, man, I keep doing it over and over again. Why do I keep doing it? And God's like, ah, come on, get it together. How many times do I have to tell you? If that's how you view God, and you know, maybe you don't articulate that way, but essentially that's how you envision God to be, kind of looking down, disappointed, that flows out into how you treat other people. You treat other people like that. You treat those that disappoint you like that. You treat those that keep messing up towards you like that. 
I know that for me personally, as I've seen more and more, as I read the Bible and see the glory of God and who he is, and I've seen, man, look how gentle God is. I was reading this story the other day about, and I'll try to give this to you really brief, but I was reading this about Elijah. And I think I mentioned this story um, last week where Elijah is doing this competition between the false god Baal and saying, okay, if he's the real God, light the altar on fire. And then if God's the real God, light this altar on fire. And their God can't light it on fire. And he's like, ha, 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 your God must be a sleeper on the toilet. Literally, okay? And, and then God lights this on fire. Okay, so Elijah has this huge victory. I mean, if that happened to you, right? If you called down fire from heaven and you're like, see, told you God was real. What would you be feeling like? Probably like, whew, oh man, God is awesome. I feel awesome. This is great. But right after that, then the king is like, hey, we, guess what, Elijah? We're going to kill you. And Elijah runs away crying, sad, scared. And he goes, I just want to die. God, my life's not even worth living. It's like, what? Dude, you just saw how powerful God was. He can do anything. You're scared of, like, what? And so me, if I'm God, I'm like, don't you get it? I just, but that's not what happens. It says he goes to sleep. He wakes up. God gives him a cake. An angel gives him a cake and some water. To me, that blows my mind. Because that shows God is just gentle and patient and loving. Okay, so that then begins to affect my heart. So that when other people that I see, man, don't you get it? Don't you get Wow, but what about me? I'm like Elijah. Over and over again, I don't get it. And what does God give to me? Cake. Man. God gives me cake when I don't get it. So doesn't, I mean, if you feel like that, if, if that touches your heart, then doesn't that flow outward to other people that don't get it? You're like, man, doesn't this person get it? Yeah, of course they don't get it. And God, when I don't get it, gives me cake. And who doesn't like cake? Okay, so, eat some cake, okay? How do we worship God instead? So, we see him. Where do we see him? Where do we see him? If we worship God by seeing him, where is it that we see him? And this is what Paul says. I'm going, I already read this, but going back to this. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Okay, I'm going to skip down to this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And here, I skipped over this, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what he says is this. Where do we, where do we see him? We see God's glory in the gospel in Jesus. Okay? So Paul says, we preach the gospel to you, and that's where you see the glory of God. We preach the gospel to you. That's where you see the face of Jesus and who he is that then causes us to worship. This is why the Bible, okay, this book here, is mainly not about what we are to do. This is mainly a book about who God is. That God says, I want you to know me. I I want you to know me. 
Right? That's what we've talked about. Man, God loves us. He cares for us. He wants our joy. And so what does he give? He gives to us himself. And he says, I want you to know me. I want you to know me. And when we see him here in the gospel, in the face of Jesus, that is what cultivates worship in our hearts. We see him and go, man, he's good. Just like I described with Elijah. But you say, well, that's not about Jesus. Well, it actually is. See, the whole Bible, Jesus says, is about him. Jesus says the whole Bible is about him. But here's what we do oftentimes. We read the Bible and we go, okay, I see this story about Elijah. How can I be like Elijah? How can I be a man of faith that calls down fire from heaven? How can I be, how can I be like that? And we turn everything into about us, into examples about us, into things that we're supposed to do. Instead of reading and going, this tells me something about what I, kind of what I just described. This tells me something about God. God's gentleness and patience in giving cake. Well, I see it there, but that even more fully is seen where? On the cross? With Jesus? His gentleness and patience with sinners? And yet he came and didn't just give cake, but gave himself? Right? So, I mean, the whole Bible... Paul said that too when he said this. He says, when Israel still reads Moses, their face is veiled. They can't actually see what it's talking about because it's talking about Jesus. And only, he says, when we turn to the Lord is the veil then removed. When you read and you go, ah, this tells me about Jesus. This tells me about the salvation I have in him. This tells me about the kind of savior, the kind of God, the kind of love, the kind of cherishing that he has for his people. That, so when you read the Bible, this is, this is why this is very practical, okay? When you read the Bible, it is not mainly a book that says, here's how you should live. It does say that. But it's mainly a book of God saying, here's who I am. Here's who I am. It's a book for us to get to know him. Because when you get to know him, what happens? You get to know him, you see him, you love him, you see him as better than every other false god, you worship him, and then that's when you go, oh, okay, now I know how to live and obey and do what he says. But a lot of times we start all the way over here, going, okay, how am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do? Instead of going, man, God is trying to show me who he is. He's trying to show me his glory in the gospel, in the face of Jesus, in his salvation for us. See, everything is forming our hearts all the time. Everything. All around us, forming our hearts all the time. In the fight to find our joy, to find our worth, to find our identity, to find our value in God instead of other things is the fight to see him to go, how is he better than all of this? How do I see his glory? How does that then change me? That's what God wants us to know. God wants us to know who he is. He wants us to know who he is. This is what severs the roots of our sin. Not just being told to change and what to do, but being shown there's a better God. Does that make sense? It's a different way to think about how we change. You know, Paul says we are transformed from one degree to the next. So first of all, it's a slow process. We're transformed from one degree of glory to the next as we see him. 
That's why that is our life is, man, am I fighting to see him? Everything else is coming at us all the time. All these other things are cultivating love in our hearts all the time. I mean, we, we don't wake, maybe you do. I don't wake up going, God is good. I worship him. We usually wake up with all sorts of things influencing our hearts, influencing. I mean, we all wake up, uh, you know, an author, pastor that I respect, John Piper says, we wake up with Satan sitting on our face. Okay, <laughs> that's a horrible image. But it's a, it's a good idea to think, man, we wake up with everything else pulling our hearts away from God. And so it's a fight to go, man, I want to remember, I want to see God so that his glory is what's filling my vision, what's changing my heart. I'm, I'm remember, we wake up thinking, okay, my identity today is going to be in what I do. My identity today is going to be based on beauty or success or people's thoughts of me or you get a bad email, you get this news, you see something again that, man, I really wish I had that, all of that stuff forming. This is, you don't have worth, you don't have value, you're not loved, it is based on your performance, it is based on, that's hitting us hard every day. And so it's a fight to go, man, I've got to remember the gospel, I've got to see God's glory in Jesus. This is why, by the way, reading your Bible is not for God. Some people think, okay, God will like me today if I read my Bible, or God will be kind of disappointed with me today if I don't. And that's, that's viewing like as if reading this is doing something for him. But it's not. It's doing something for us. We read and we go, man, God, thanks for telling me about yourself. I see who you are more clearly. And that's blessing me and changing my heart to know you, to love you, because I see you. Final thing is this. So how do we read the Bible to see Jesus? How do we read the Bible not then just to go, okay, that's nice. What it means is kind of what I've already been saying. I've been trying to kind of put it throughout. But you open the Bible and the starting question should be, what does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about Jesus? What does this tell me about the salvation that I have in him? What does this tell me about his character? That's where we start. Because that's primarily what God's trying to communicate to us, is who he is. He's revealing himself to us. Not, what does this tell me for how I should live? I'm not saying you don't ask that at all, okay? But it starts with, who is God and who is he telling me that he is? And I just know from growing up in the church and from being around Christians a lot that our proclivity is to go straight to what does this tell me to do? And we miss all the things that are saying, this is who God is, look how awesome he is, look at his glory, look at his... And those are the things that most change us and form our hearts to then do what we should do. So you open the Bible starting with, God, who are you? Who are you? And this, this is what this means. Don't, I, you know, I don't want to say don't, okay? But I'll just tell you, I don't. And that doesn't, uh, doesn't mean there's no value in them. But I've never done like a Bible reading plan thing. Because 
And some of you are like, what's that? But some of you know what that is. Read the Bible in a year type thing, okay? I've never done that because a lot of times what that cultivates is, okay, I've got to read these two chapters. Okay, I've got to read these five chapters. And it's just reading it to get through it instead of reading it to do what Paul says, to see the glory of God, to see who Jesus is, to see his worth, his beauty, his value, his salvation, to see that, to go, God, I want to know you. So you might do that with two verses. You might do it with a whole chapter. I don't know. But if you read it just to go, I got to get through this, what is that? I mean, that's that's nothing. God says, I want to show you myself. That's how, that's how it's done. Okay. Hands free. So we're reading to see who God is. This can take 15 minutes. This can take an hour. This can take 25 minutes. And here's what I would just ask you. I would encourage you, if you don't read the Bible, if you don't, if you don't spend time, just make a commitment to doing it. Even if it's 15 minutes a day or 15 minutes every other day, whatever. Just start somewhere. Everything is forming, I'm telling you, everything all the time is forming our worship, what we love, what we see. God wants you to know him. God wants you to know him. I mean, that's a good, you know, Paul said in that verse that that, um, this is freedom. This gives us freedom. Every other idol enslaves us. God gives us freedom. He wants you to see him. He wants you to know him. So, I'll close with just a couple practical suggestions. One is this. When you read the Bible, start with what I said, saying, God, show me yourself. Talk, I mean, talk to him. Say, God, I don't want to just read a book. Show me yourself. Show me who you are. Show me who you are. That's what Paul says. Show me who you are. Start when you read, praying that. Paul says that, this is from the Spirit, meaning that we see the, the glory of Christ. We see the glory of Him in the gospel. And He says, This is from the Spirit, meaning that the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, has to make this alive to our hearts versus just, Okay, I see who you are. Check. That's not, He wants us to see, to, the Bible says, to taste who He is. David says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. So we're coming to this not just like a textbook but like a relationship to say, God, I want to know you. I want to taste you. Holy Spirit, make these truths real to my heart. Show me, open my eyes. Number two is this, and this is really helpful for me, is I encourage you to to journal or write out your thoughts as you're doing this, to journal your prayers as you're doing this. Most people I know get really distracted when they're reading the Bible or praying. Thoughts go over here, thoughts go over here, thoughts go over here. I, I cannot hardly, probably 80% of the time, pray unless I'm writing those prayers out. Some people think that's unspiritual, or oh, but I, I can't. I mean, maybe you might have a more focused mind than me, and that's great, but unless I'm writing, and I use the computer because I can't read my own handwriting, I use a computer and type out, God, Help me to see you. And then as I'm seeing things, God, it's so awesome that you're gentle to me like you are with Elijah. It's so awesome that you give me cake when I'm... And I, I type those things out because otherwise my mind is everywhere. So I encourage you to do that. 
encourage you to find a time and a place to do it. Otherwise, it just probably won't happen. Find a time and a place. And for you um, husbands that have children, give this time to your wives. A lot of times wives are, if, if they don't uh, work outside the home or always with the kids, doing all sorts of things and never have a free second. So give them that time. Say, hey, I'm going to watch the kids. Go, whatever it is, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 10 hours, whatever it is. Wait a minute, 10 hours? <laughs> I, you know, you can, you can tell them I said it. Um, and then I would say this too, be persistent. Sometimes, and just full disclosure, okay, sometimes I open the Bible and read it and close it and go, I mean, after I read it, I read it, close it and go, Okay. Okay? Sometimes I know that that's where my heart is starting. Okay, God, I want to see you as glorious. I want you to do a work in my heart right now. And I say, I don't feel like reading. I don't feel like fighting to see you. I just feel like going on Facebook. I just feel like getting to work and getting on with my day. I just feel like, but God, help me right now. Sometimes that changes the whole experience, and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes I open the Bible and go, God, show me who you are, and it's awesome. And it's just like, that was great. Wow, God, you're great. So there's different experiences, okay? But just be persistent because it's the little things that accumulate over time, the same way that it is with other things. You don't look at one picture on your phone and go, I'm worshiping that. Right? It doesn't happen. It's over time. Little things just start to shape our hearts. So be persistent. Even in the times you're like, okay, that was all right. Okay, great. You saw. At least you saw. Maybe not as clearly, maybe not as vividly, but you saw something. And then I would say, take it with you. And what I mean by that is this. Um, try to see something about Jesus that stands out to you, that attracts your heart, and take it with you. And here's what I mean. You know, I need, I'll just use my Elijah example again, because obviously it was profound to me, okay? And it stuck with me, even though I read that a while ago. If I know, man, this is a truth about God, I need to believe. It's a truth I see about God as glorious. And I take that with me when I'm going into a certain situation, which means I stop and I pray, God, help me to remember again how gentle you are with me. I know I need to believe this in about five minutes as I'm entering into this situation. And then in the middle of that situation, I'm praying in my mind, okay, God, help me to remember how gracious and patient and loving and gentle you've been with me as I'm talking with someone that I don't want to give cake to. And then afterwards, after I messed up, so I didn't give cake, and I was harsh with someone that didn't get it like Elijah, then I go, God, even right now, and I just blew it, but what are you going to do? You're going to give me cake. Oh, man, thank you. Even though I just forgot, even though I just put something else there instead and worshiped something, even though I just did that, God, thank you that you just gave me cake. 
So, I'm, so take it with you through your day, through your week. Meditate, chew on the truth of who God is. We're doing this all the time with other things. You might think, oh, that seems hard. We do this all the time with other things. We let other things roll around in our minds and in our head, and we focus on them, and we think about them, and we, and we roll all the time. And it forms our hearts, and it forms what we worship, and it cultivates us. All right, for the sake of time, and because it's 300 degrees in here, I'm going to stop and just say, as we're done with this, this is what it means to worship the true Jesus. Okay, these four weeks, we're talking about, this is, this is Jesus. This is what it means, that God loves us and has saved us despite our sin, that he wants our joy, so he brings us into relationship with himself and gives us himself, that we run after other idols all the time, but they eat us alive, and yet, only in Jesus, the true God, do we experience freedom and joy and peace. And this is what I want you to know so desperately. And this is how we cultivate that, what we talked about tonight. This is how we cultivate that over and over and over again. It's how we rehearse the gospel. This is part of why church is so important. It's part of why taking communion is so important. It's part of why singing is so important because it helps us to move these truths of who God is deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts and to form our vision and to form our worship and to then form our lives. So when we take communion, we remember everything that I just said. This is who Jesus is, that he gave us his life he forgives us our sin. He brings us to himself. And if you're not a Christian, I would invite you to come to this Jesus, to worship this Jesus. If you are a Christian, as you come and take communion tonight, just come thanking, man, how good this God is, that he loves us, would save us, would reveal himself to us in his word. He's good. He forgives, he saves, he adopts, he frees. And he continues to show us that over and over again. And then, if you're not a Christian, please don't give. But if you call this church your home church, we have offering baskets in the front. And that's another way we worship, to say God is most important to us. He's most important. And so with my life, with my time, with my money, with everything, I worship him. Let me pray for us, and then we will sing to worship this God. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have given us grace. Thank you that you haven't just forgiven us, but you've adopted us into your family. You've called us to you. God, thank you for continually drawing us back to yourself, that even as we run after other gods, even as we set up other things in our lives as most important, even as we look to other things to form our identity, you are patient, you are forgiving, you are loving, you pursue our hearts over and over and over again. God, I thank you for that. Thank you that you don't just let us wander away, but that you keep drawing us back to you. Lord, help us to see you, to see your glory in the face of Jesus in the gospel, to see how great a savior you are, to see how you're better than everything else. Help us to see that. Even right now, Lord, in people's hearts, help us all to see that. Even as we take communion, make that fresh. Even as we sing songs, Lord, make it fresh. Just help us to see you. And even as Paul prayed that if there's people's eyes that are blinded by the enemy, by the devil, 
Lord, I pray that you would unblind their eyes and let them see your glory, how good you are, how gracious you are. In your name, Jesus. Amen.